Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Hey, Goal Achievers, it's Hal Elrod, and whether you are brand new to the Achieve Your Goals podcast or you've been a uh, longtime listener, thank you for that, you may have noticed that I almost never, ever have sponsors for the Achieve Your Goals podcast, and that is because when I started the podcast in 2012, my only intention was to add value for my readers of the Miracle Morning and members of the Miracle Morning community, and while I don't think there's anything wrong with having sponsors, you know, especially if you're recommending Uh, things that you personally use or believe in, but I don't have any plans on bringing on sponsors because adding value uh, to your life and your world is still my main commitment and and why I'm doing this. Um, So because of that, other than one or two random instances, I've never really had a sponsor or uh, earned money directly from the podcast. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad for me. I do benefit a lot from the podcast and I hope you do too, but uh, there has been one huge benefit from the podcast that in my opinion uh, outweighs any sponsors that I could potentially bring on. And that is the best year ever blueprint live experience and how many of our listeners end up attending the live event. Um, when we survey, we always you know survey our audience before or after the event and say, where'd you hear about the best year ever blueprint live experience? And uh, again, it's our annual event that happens every December in San Diego. And on that form, a large percentage always are, oh, you know, I was listening to your podcast and you did a commercial on it or you talked about it or whatever. So you could say that I'm my own sponsor, right? So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll be talking about it more over the next few weeks, but check it out, bestyeareverlive.com. It is a scientifically designed community created experience that is designed to elevate your awareness reflection and reconnection with your inner wisdom while inviting you to reinvent your highest self. So in other words, the best year ever blueprint is unlike any event that you've ever been to. And I can say that with a lot of conviction, uh, A, because our attendees tell us that, B, because I go to a lot of events and most of them are taking notes and going home and applying your notes. And let's be honest, those notes you could have gotten on Google or in a book for 20 bucks instead of spending spending you know hundreds and hundreds or thousands of dollars to go to an event. Uh, well, that's why at Best Year Ever, we do very differently. John Berghoff and I co-host the event and it's about you and the experience that you have, not what you learn. That's why we call it the Best Year Ever blueprint live experience, not just live event. Yes, it's an event. But anyway, the best thing you could do, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this episode. I just wanted to tell you about it. Go to bestyeareverlive.com. Watch the video. That's where you actually get to relive last year's Best Year Ever blueprint live experience and see for yourself what it is all about. So I do hope that I see you there. It is life-changing. We've got about 200 and I, I don't know the exact number, like just under 300 spots are taken and we can fit about, usually it's 400 to 450 people in the room. I don't know if we're in the same room this year. I'll have to find those details out and I will definitely let you know the details. But for now, just check out the video, see if it's a good fit. And if it is, you can secure your spot at bestyeareverlive.com. All right, Goal Achievers, I love you and I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast.
goal achievers. All right. All right. You guys ready for this? Today is going to be fun. I started reading a book this morning. So in full disclosure, right? The guest today, uh, I am three chapters into his book, but I'm blown away. Like I just, we, we were just chatting before we started recording. And uh, I said, you are such a good writer. Like this is, I, I don't remember the last time I started reading a book that I am this impressed and enthralled with the quality of writing. And, and not when I say quality, like how it just captivates you. You just want to keep reading. It's like watching a great movie. I'm going to give a bio here for our guest because he might have one of the most fascinating bios I've ever read. And uh, you're going to witness us getting to know each other beyond the 10 minutes we just spent chatting uh, right before your eyes. And I'm, I'm excited about uh, getting to know my guest, Alex Benayan. And uh, he is the only nationally best-selling business author under 30 in America. And his book, which I am literally holding my hands right now, it is titled The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launched Their Careers. And it's been translated into more than a dozen languages uh, after coming out, I think, about a year ago. And over the course of Alex's unprecedented seven-year journey, he interviewed the most innovative leaders of the past half century, including Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Larry King, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Jane Goodall, Jessica Alba, Quincy Jones, and many, many more. And his story, where it begins in the book, and it's so fascinating, the day before his freshman year final exams, freshman in college, Alex hacked The Price is Right. Yes, the game show, the famous game show. And he won a sailboat. Then he sold it, right? So he won like the showcase, the grand prize on the prices right with Drew Carey. He sold it and he used the money to fund his larger than life adventure to travel the world and interview some of the world's literally most successful people. And since then, Alex has been named to Forbes' 30 under 30 list, Business Insider's most powerful people under 30, and been featured in major media, including the Washington Post, Fortune, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and NBC News. I found out he just turned 27 years old, and he's already an acclaimed keynote speaker. Benayan has presented the Third Door Framework to business conferences and corporate leadership teams around the world, including Apple, Google, Nike, IBM, Snapchat, Salesforce, and Disney. As I said, one of the most fascinating individuals, and it's about to get more fascinating goal achievers. So tune in. Uh, Alex Benayan, welcome to the Achiever Goals Podcast, my friend. Thank you so, so much, man. It really means a lot, and I'm really excited to be here with you. Absolutely. I, you know, for, first of all, like I said, I, just, I have to tell you, your book is so well written. Let me be really real. And this, for my listeners, this is something you yeah. probably know about me. I don't like reading stories, as weird as that is. Like, not, not that I don't like reading stories. I love stories. I'm a storyteller. I love stories. But when it comes to reading books, I'm very left brain, right? I'm into personal development, professional development. Like, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I got it. You, you, <laughs> you overcame some stuff. Like, what's the framework, right? Like, give me the yeah. six steps, right? So that's how I normally am. And I'm on every word. Like, you are, yeah, phenomenal. Thank so you, that it really does mean a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I feel insecure as a writer. I'm like, dude, I suck as a writer. <laughs> well, dude, if you were reading my first draft, you would not be giving me compliments. All right, so. yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So um, how did the book begin? Let, let's start there. It, it began seven years ago. So I, it took seven years to write this book. And it started when I was 18 years old. 
I was a freshman in college and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I was going through this, you know, the, what do I want to do with my life crisis? Mm. And to understand why I was going through it, you have to understand that I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means, you know, I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms and then she stamped MD on my ass and just sent me on my way. <laughs> Got and, it. You know, you think it's medical doctor, right? Right, exactly. Yep. And you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. <laughs> nice. And you know, in high school, I checked all the boxes. I studied for you know the SATs. I took all the biology classes. I went to pre med summer camp. So by the time I got to college, I was the pre med of pre meds. But very quickly. And I found myself on this dorm room bed, looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed I was just being lazy. But very quickly, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. You know, maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now, you know, not only do I not know what I wanted to do with my life, I had no idea how the people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did... Bill Gates sells first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or how did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So, Hal, I literally just assumed there had to be a book out there with the answer. So I'm, you know, going to the library and I'm just like ripping through business books and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book with the answer. And what I was obsessed with wasn't about a particular age in life but more about a particular stage. You know, when no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings, you know, you're faced with, you know, rejection after rejection, how do you find a way to break through? Hmm. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, <laughs> interview everybody else, and I thought it'd be done in a few months. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund the journey. Mm, okay. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library. And I'm doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. and. I'm on Facebook and you know, you, you mentioned this earlier. I f saw someone offering free tickets to the prices, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was going to college in Los Angeles, not too far from where the show filmed. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest, you know, not my brightest idea. Plus, it was the next day, right? The, the show was... Air well, that was my, well, that was my problem. I was like, this is an idiotic idea because I have, you know, the show's filming the next day. I have finals in two days. Plus, on top of that, I've never seen a full episode of the show before. You know, I've, of course, seen bits and pieces when I was homesick from school in fourth grade, but I've never seen like a full episode before. Yeah. So I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. But I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where... An idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. You know, yeah. as much as you try to push it away, it just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. So that night, 
I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said how to hack the prices right. <laughs> and I went on the show the next day and did this you know, preposterous strategy. And I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. Okay. Yeah. And you just went through, like the way you tell the story in the book is it's phenomenal. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You're in the audience, you're Googling how to hack the prices, right? They take your phone. You're asking the old woman next to you who's watched it for like <laughs> 30 years, right? Like you're crowdsourcing wisdom, learning how, to, I mean, yeah. So phenomenal. So, but yeah, so you get to the final showcase, right? And then you won by what, tell me again, the numbers uh, roughly, it was like 30, uh, the, your competitor it was you against another gal, and she was. I think her showcase was like she was within like eleven hundred dollars, and you were within like you beat her by one hundred forty five bucks, right? Yeah. Wow. Good memory. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I'm normally not have good memory, but I guess uh, I'm. And, and the crazy thing is, like when I won that sailboat, I sold it for like I think like sixteen thousand dollars, which for a college student is a million dollars. Sure. You know, I'm like taking all my friends to Chipotle. I'm like, you know, free guacamole for everybody. You know, it's like, I'm a baller now. <laughs> <laughs> That's really where the journey took off. You know, it took two years to eventually track down Bill Gates. It took three years to track down Lady Gaga. And when I had started the journey, when I had started, there was no part of me looking for that, you know, quote unquote, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those, you know, business books or those TED Talks. And one, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, normally I just roll my eyes. But what, I'm, what ended up happening is over these seven years, every single person I interviewed, it didn't matter if it was, you know, Steve Wozniak for computer science or Maya Angelou for poetry. I realized every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. Okay. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, they're just standing in line, hoping the bouncer lets them in. That's the first door. All right. And then there was the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. Hmm. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. And what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. And I love the analogy. Well, let's get practical. What, what, uh, give, you know, give me some examples of, so obviously the analogy of, you know, you, you go around the block, you go down the alley, you, you know, you, you, you climb in through the window, right? And that's your third door. What does that look like in, in real life? And what does it look like, uh, or, you know, what did it look like specifically for Bill Gates and Lady Gaga and, and, and you know, some of these people that you uh, had the privilege of, and Maya Angelou and had the privilege of interviewing? What's cool about the third door? is that it's not a, you know, a recipe for success. It's a mindset. Exactly. And it, so 
it plays out differently in everyone's life. Like, you know, a great example is Steven Spielberg. He, you know, his biggest dream when he was growing up was to become a film director. And, you know, he worked hard, applied to film school and got rejected. But, you know, of course he, you know, was persistent and he actually applied again a second time and he got rejected again. And I would say that's where like 99% of people normally stop. Yeah. But he decided to take his film education into his own hands. So he applied, you know, he went to a community college in Los Angeles so he could just be in the vicinity of his dream. And he went to Universal Studios Hollywood, you know, the famous theme park in LA. Sure. And there's this ride which gives you sort of like a backstage tour of the Universal theme park. Uh, in the Universal theme studio, the Universal you know film lot. So Spielberg is on this tour bus. He's 19 years old, and the tour bus is going around the film studio. And he jumps off the tour bus, hides in a bathroom, waits for the bus to drive away, and starts walking around the lot. And about an hour later, he bumps into this old man, you know, this older gentleman named Chuck Silvers who is the head of the universal library, the universal television library. And this man sees this like young teenager, you know, wandering by himself. He says, you know, what are you doing here? And this young 19 year old tells him, you know, it's my biggest dream to be a director. And he tells him the truth. I was on the bus. They jumped off and they end up talking for like an hour. And at the end of the conversation, Chuck Silvers asked Spielberg, how would you like to come back on the lot the next couple of days? Spielberg goes, you know, that would be a dream. So Chuck Silvers wrote him a three-day pass. Hmm. And Spielberg goes the first day and the second day and the third day. And then on the fourth day, Spielberg comes, you know, dressed in a suit, carrying his dad's briefcase. And he walks right up to the security entrance, you know, throws a hand up in the air, waves at the guard and is, you know, just yells out, you know, hey, Scotty. And the guard just waves back and Spielberg walks right in. And he starts doing this over and over and over again. And, you know, for months, he's, you know, sneaking into editing bays, you know, (laughs) going onto sound stages, asking actors and directors out to lunch. And he's literally taking his film education to his own hands. And he's absorbing all the knowledge he can. He's meeting all these people. And after a few months of this, though, and, you know, pretty much every day he's being thrown out by security at some point. Yeah, And after a few months, Chuck Silver slowly becomes Spielberg's mentor, and he gave him some very important advice. He said, look, there has to be a point in your life where you stop schmoozing and you actually create something of quality that you have to show. Don't come back to the lot until you have a short film that you're really proud of. Hmm. And Spielberg you know, took that very hard advice to heart and... He spent months, you know, grueling over the directing and editing of a short, you know, 22 minute film called Amblin. And he finally went back to Chuck Silvers and showed him this movie. And Chuck Silvers watched it and it was so good. A single tear fell down his cheek. Wow. And Chuck Silvers just at the end reached for the phone and immediately called the vice president of production at Universal Television. Sid Scheinberg. And he said, Sid, I have something you have to see tonight. And, you know, the vice president's like, look, there's a lot of things I have to see. And Chuck Silver goes, no, if you don't watch this, somebody else will. 
the vice president's like, you think it's that important? And Chuck Silver goes, yes, it's that important. And Chuck Silver's even like went as far to call, because back then they had like a projectionist because you have to like put it on the projector. And Chuck Silver's called the projectionist and was like, look, make sure this is the first thing Sid watches tonight. Wow. And sure enough, the vice president watched it that night. And the next morning, Spielberg got a call saying the vice president wants to see him immediately. Spielberg, you know, like ditches his class, like rushes over to Universal, goes into the corner office and on the desk is a contract making him the youngest director in Hollywood history. Wow. And what was the film? Did I miss Uh, So the film was called Amblin. It's actually really good. Uh, It's Spielberg's first short film. It's 22 minutes. Okay. And, you know, he produced it, directed it, edited it all himself. And what's amazing about this story is, you know, of course, Spielberg had incredible talent, but so do a lot of aspiring directors. You know, the question is, how did Spielberg become the youngest director when everyone else did it? Yeah. And on the one hand, it sort of looks like a people game. You know, he was meeting people on the lot. He was networking. But that, it sort of like demeans the gravitas of this story. Yeah. And to me, it's almost like, it's not just a people game. It's like the Spielberg game. And I sort of see it as like three steps of the process. The first step is, you know, he jumped off the bus. He jumped off that tour bus. The second step is he found his inside man in Chuck Silver's. And the third step was, you know, he had his inside man, you know, pull him in with that, you know, introduction to Sid Scheinberg. And the key to the process, I think the most important step is the second step, which is finding your inside man. And that's anyone in an organization. It doesn't matter if it's a film studio, if it's a business you're trying to get, you know, do, you know, a deal with, whether it's a publishing house whether it's a job and it's the job recruiter, the inside man or the inside woman is anyone inside of an organization who believes in you enough that they're willing to stake their reputation on the line to bring you in. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at Steven Spielberg's career, Warren Buffett's career, Bill Gates's career, every single one of them had an inside man or an inside woman who completely changed the course of their career. And the key to the third door is not to sit around and hope, you know, you just find an inside man by chance while you're sitting on your couch. It's by going out there and cultivating that. Mm. I love that. I, you know, and I, you're, I, I can't agree, couldn't agree more. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking in my own head, right? I'm thinking like, who are my inside men and women? And, you know, one that comes to mind is uh, Mike Koenigs. And Mike Koenigs, who's written many books and very successful entrepreneur, I connected with Mike at an entrepreneurial dinner and uh, he was my inside man. And uh, he was uh, with an agent, a book agency, uh, it, not, not working for the agency, but he was, you know, he was one of their authors. And uh, long story short is he made the introduction to one of the finest agents in the world, Celeste Fine. And, uh, you know, she has personally gotten the Miracle Morning translated into 37 languages and, you know, published in 100 countries. And it sold over a million copies under her watch, if you will, overseas in, in these countries. And so it's, it's reaching people around the world. Uh, and it was because of one inside man you know, Mike Koenigs. And I mean, we all spare the podcast with going through, you know, person after person after person. But I just, I love what you're sharing because I think this is really an untapped 
strategy. It's almost an unknown strategy, right? Like, you know, there's the whole generic, well, it's, it's, it's you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, like, well, you, right, exactly. Right. Like, well, that, that doesn't help you if you just, you know, like shut your brain off at that point. And I think most people do like, yeah, if only I knew people. Right. There's, there's a diminishing return. You definitely need to know people, but if you have nothing to show, it doesn't matter how well connected you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, give me an example then. Cause that, that's another track within this line of thinking, which is, yeah, for me, I would call, I would call that as you've got to find a way to add value to their world, right? Like that's how I, the language that I use, like when you find your inside man or woman, find out what's important to them, find out what their self-interests are and then figure out a way to align, uh, support their interests. Uh, and maybe it's, they are big into a charity and you support that charity, right? So there's infinite ways to do it. But any thoughts on, um, once you've identified your inside man or woman, um, how, how do you connect? How do you reach out? How do you, you know, other than jumping off the tour bus and, <laughs> and, and pull well, what's interesting is, you know, when I was just starting out, you know, the whole question of like adding value, like made sense when I was like meeting people, maybe at like a, you know, a business conference. But when it came to like, you know, people like Bill Gates, it's how do you add value to Bill yeah, Gates? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. like, come on. But I actually learned a very interesting lesson. And I don't know how we're looking at time, but do we have time for like a, another like nice meaty story? Yeah, no, please. In fact, I was going to ask you how you got all those interviews with those people that I would have no idea how to <laughs> like, you know, your list of Bill Gates, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, right? Like, you know, Jessica Alba, I, I, if, if someone said, Hey, how do you, you know, can you get interviews with those people? I'd go, uh, uh beats me. I have no, I have no. <laughs> so yeah, man, if that, I don't know if that fits into the story, but yeah, please go ahead. Okay. So yeah, it definitely fits into the story. So this is each interview, getting each interview was its own, you know, very separate adventure. You know, like I said, some took years, but there's definitely one that was the most miraculous and it took place about halfway through. Okay. So, you know, something you have to understand, you know, because you're reading the book is that these aren't random, you know, Q&A interviews. They're all journeys that lead to each other. So right before this situation was a long eight month saga with Warren Buffett. And it sort of sort of the ending of it was that I ended up hacking his shareholders meeting in front of, you know, like 30,000 people and asking my interview questions uh, at the shareholders meeting. and. Although part of it was a success, another part of it was a complete disaster and it blew up in my face. And I sort of was just completely dejected, uh, sort of at the lowest point. Okay. And it was just one of those times where I just couldn't pull myself out of bed, just you know, pulling the covers over my head for weeks. And you know, if there's one theme of this journey, it's that when I'm at my lowest points, it's always my best friends who pull me back up. And one of my best friends, his name is Corwin. And, you know, he's like, dude, you got to get out of bed. You know, why don't we go grab some lunch? So we go to a grocery store to like grab sandwiches. and We end up just sitting on the sidewalk and eating, you know, and Corwin's trying to, you know, raise my energy. And he's like, come on, man. Like, don't you have any other interviews lined up? I'm like, dude, I got nothing. And he's like, come on, like, let's say you had an interview lined up. Like, who would you want to talk to? What would you want to ask? And I'm like, man, uh, you know, I was just being really pissy. I'm like, ah, oh, even if I had another interview, I'd probably like mess that up too. Look at what happened with Buffett. And Corn's like, look, man, you can't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't a science, it's an art. And as we're talking about this, the most miraculous moment of the entire journey happens. 
a car pulls up with tinted windows, parks right in front of us. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. No way. Now, if you are anything like me, when things line up so perfectly like that, that's actually when I get the most nervous. Like I call it like the flinch and like my mouth is like, becomes like wired shut. My throat clenches, my feet turn to stone. And I literally just sit there watching Larry King walk right past me into the grocery store. And I don't say a thing. And my friend Corin, you know, sort of like jams his elbow into me. It's like, dude, what the hell? You know, why didn't you say anything? And you know, the thing about fear is that it's very good at making logical excuses. And I was like, Oh, you know, you know, he's probably going in to buy something for his family. Like, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to be that guy. And Corin's like, dude, you are that guy. And Hmm. I'm like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) own it, own it. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, my fear keeps making excuses. I'm like, Oh, you know, uh, well, you know, he's probably very deep in the grocery store now. You know, there's no way I'll be able to find him. And Corwin's like, dude, he's 80 years old. How far <laughs> could he have gotten? Okay. So very reluctantly, I get up and I walk into this grocery store looking for Larry King. And, you know, I'm looking around the bakery. You know, no Larry. I go to the produce section, you know, the fruits, vegetables, no Larry. and. Immediately, I remembered that he had parked in a loading zone, so he must be leaving any second now. So this bolt of adrenaline kicks into me, and I start running through the grocery store, sprinting down every aisle looking for Larry King. You know, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. You know, I'm running down, cutting the fro- like cutting around the frozen food section, sprinting you know down, no Larry, and I figure he has to be at the checkout counter. So I run to the front. I'm looking at the checkout counters. No Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And at this point, I wanted to kick myself because he had been right in front of me and I hadn't said a thing. Hmm. And I'm sort of just staring down at my feet and walking out into the parking lot. And I slowly lift my head. And right there, 20 feet in front of me, is Larry King, you know, suspenders and all. And I don't know what gets into me, you know, but all this, like, I think it might have just been all this, like, frustration and anger was, like, combusting inside of me. And uncontrollably out of my mouth, I started yelling at the top <laughs> of my lungs, Mr. King! And how the echo in the parking lot was so loud the poor guy is 80 years old and had quadruple bypass surgery and i will never forget him literally jumping in the air jeez you almost killed larry king alex (laughs) (laughs) you know like he he like he slowly turns around every wrinkle on his face is sprung back you know it looks like he's looking at the grim reaper and you know, I don't know what to do. And I just like sort of like run toward him. And I'm like, Mr. King, Mr. King, you know, my name's Alex. I'm, you know, 20 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And he's like, okay, hi. And he walks the other way. Ah, that's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just like too deep to like pull back now. So I just like am awkwardly following him on the sidewalk out Jesus to his car. King, Larry King, sure. 
And it's just like in complete silence. And we're now out by his car. And I'm like, you know, he puts his groceries in the trunk, opens the driver's side door. And I'm like, wait, Mr. King, can I go to breakfast with you? (laughs) And he looks at me like I'm a lunatic. Oh my God. And before he can respond, he looks onto the sidewalk and sees that there's like a dozen people now watching this go down. So he sort of just like shrugs his shoulders and he's like, okay, 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 okay. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. Oh my God, I'm so happy. Thank you. Uh, great, I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, he, you know, he gets into his car and right before he's about to shut the door, I'm like, wait, Mr. King, what time? <laughs> and he just looks at me and slams the door shut. And I'm now like shouting through the windshield. I'm like, you know, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me, starts the engine. I'm now standing in front of his windshield, waving my arm, shouting, Mr. King, what time? (laughs) And he just looks at me and he's like, nine o'clock. And he just speeds off. (laughs) So, you know, sure enough. You know, the next morning comes around, it's nine o'clock, and I walk into this, you know, bagel restaurant, and there's Larry King, you know, sitting at the corner booth with his best friends. He's a man of his word. He's a man of his word, and there's an open seat at the table, but, you know, the night prior, I had had some time to reflect on how I had acted the day before, Hmm. and I thought, you know, today, maybe I should be a bit more gentle. There you go. And, you know, I walk up and I'm like, hey, you know, good morning, Mr. King. And he just looks up at it and he just sort of like grumbles. He's like, you know, he just sort of mumbles. Oh my God, that annoying kid showed up. Right, exactly. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe he needs, you know, some time alone. So I'll just sit at the table next to him, wait and wait for him to call me over. 10 minutes pass, 20 minutes pass. An hour passes, mm-hmm. and finally he gets up, and he starts walking toward me. And, you know, I can feel my cheeks lifting. And he walks right past me and heads for the exit. And I sort of just put a hand up in the air, and I'm like, Mr. Mr. King? And he just looks at me, and he's like, what is a kid? What do you want? And at this point, I just felt a very sharp, familiar pain in my chest. And I was like, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face, almost as if he was saying, you know, why didn't you say so? Oh, yeah. And he ends up giving me, you know, the greatest monologue of interviewing advice I've ever heard. And then he looks up to the ceiling at the end almost as if he's debating something in his mind. And then he looks back at me and sort of like puts a finger in my face and he goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 8.45, see you here. And I show up the next morning at 8.45, you know, he calls me over to his table. He asks me why I even wanted to learn about interviewing. I tell him about my book and he's like, all right, I'm in. And over the course of the past five years, I've been to breakfast with him over 50 times. You're kidding me. And the reason I thought about this story when you first asked your question about, you know, adding value when you get to meet people is 
that made no sense. You know, why am I at this breakfast table, you know, over and over and over again, you know, beyond Larry King, just being an incredibly kind person. Yeah, sure. And, you know, in hindsight, I can see that there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he has like his five best friends that eat breakfast with every morning. Yeah. You know, there's like Cal, there's uh, Barry, there's Bruce, there's Broadway Bruce, you know, there's a whole, you know, you know, cast of characters. Yantra, sure. Right. And, you know, they're all like 80 years old. So I remember like <laughs> you know, showing Barry, you know, how to use an iPad. And I remember like Bruce being like, what's Instagram? You're and I like remember like, kid they never had. <laughs> right. And I remember like Larry King is like, oh, what's the next thing? And I'm like, oh, there's this thing called Snapchat. He's like, who made it? And I like emailed <laughs> Evan Spiegel on the spot. I'm like, hey, Evan, like Larry wants to meet you. You know, like, <laughs> so I'm sort of like, you know, this like digital, like, you know, grandkid, I think. Like, that's yeah, I'm like sort of like this bridge for them. Yeah. And one of the other uh, people at the table was this man named Cal Fussman, who was Larry's ghostwriter and was a writer uh, for Esquire magazine. And when I met Cal, he, the first thing he ever told me is that Twitter is his kryptonite and he hates the internet. And he then started complaining about how his whole career is going down the drain because he climbed to the top of the magazine world and it's starting to crumble. You know, the mountain he climbed is collapsing. Mm. And that night I like read some of his magazine pieces and they're like some of the greatest things I've ever read in my life. And I was like, Cal, it took me like 30 minutes being like a detective on the internet to find these. How is it not like on your website? And he's like, I don't have a website. And so I ended up, uh, becoming very close friends with Larry's best friend, Cal. And what I started realizing is that, and I actually, I don't take credit for this advice. I learned this from a man named Will McDonough, who used to be a vice president at Goldman Sachs. And Will told me the reason someone mentors you is for one of three reasons. Mm, I'm excited. I'm writing these yeah. down. He said, number one, it's because they see a part of themselves in you. Mm. You know, they see a younger version of themselves in you. So they relate to you. That's number one. Number two is for some reason, they want to make you more like them. They see a value in making you more like them. Okay. Or number three, which is the most surprising to me, is they want to be more like you. And in hindsight, I can see what he means by that because I've seen a lot of extremely successful people. Like if you actually go to, you know, Wall Street and you spend time with these like, you know, 70 year old, you know, hedge fund managers, they normally have like this like 22 year old, like right hand person, you know, a chief of staff, a director, of, you know, special product, like this right hand person. They're always like, why is this person in this room? But for some reason that like 22 year old has like this incredible energy is like fired up working like 20 hours a day. And what I've learned is that sometimes the most successful people who have reached this like iconic level, they miss that energy, that like hungry, you know, there's always a way let's do it. Let's change the world energy. Yeah. And look, they don't want to travel with a thousand 22 year olds, you know, with that energy, but when they do come across someone like that, it is powerful. And what 
this vice president from Goldman Sachs told me, and he says, he said the best mental relationships have all three of those components. I was just going to say that. I, yeah, I was just going to say, I think that it's all three for a lot, a lot, a lot, most of the time. You know? Those are the ones that are the most sustainable mental relationships. You know, number one, they see a part of themselves in you. Number two is they think the world will be a better place if they can, you know, pass along what they know to you. Mm. And number three, they want some of your energy. I love that. And I think a lot of young people like greatly underestimate the value of being really positive, hardworking, and optimistic and thoughtful. You know, you don't want to be, there's a difference between being obviously naively optimistic and Mm. like pragmatically optimistic. And I think a lot of very successful people like feel rejuvenated being around because when you get older, there's just so many cynics around. A lot of times like experts and really rich people can be very cynical. And there's something really invigorating about, you know, that young energy. You know, I'm not even old. I'm, you know, I'm still in my 20s, but sometimes I'll be at events and I'll meet like this 19-year-old or this 15-year-old. I'm like, oh man, like you had that fire. Like it feels so good talking to them. You know, their eyes are like shining. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just one of those things. I'm sure you see it on a daily basis, just shining eyes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you can put yourself in their shoes and go, man, I was once there. I was once hungry. I was once curious. I was once, you know, right. Didn't know what the heck I was doing. And so uh, I think that's where that, that element of seeing a part of you and them, right. For me, I always, I go, man, what would I have hoped that the person I was reaching out to, or I was asking for help, what would I hope they have said, right? So for me, yeah. that's what I try to answer is like, oh, you want me to write a forward for your book? Well, yeah, when I reached out to authors to write a forward for my book, I was terrified that they wouldn't and most didn't. And, you know, but yeah, so I know yeah, yeah. It's, it's so practical and pragmatic. I love this. Yeah. And something that I learned, you know, when I went to go interview Bill Gates, I was, you know, really pressing him for his negotiation secrets and sales secrets. But one of the things that naturally came up in those topics is, really what it's like to have someone more experienced, more senior take you under their wing. And something Bill taught me was that, you know, whether it's CEOs or, you know, famous authors, they want to spend time and mentor people who subconsciously feel like a good investment for them. And with that, you know, the example Bill Gates gave me is like, if you are, you know, meeting a CEO of a company and you say, hey, what's a book you recommend for someone who wants to get into this industry? And they're like, oh, read, you know, so-and-so book. You know, they're naturally going to assume you either won't read it or you might read it over the next month. If you email them in three days, thanking them and letting them know how you read the entire book and how the lessons have already changed the way you view the world and have changed your life, and letting them know how much their 30 seconds of advice meant to you. You know, Bill Gates said very clearly, he said, that creates a mental model in their mind that you are a person worth giving advice to. And people will start, you know, the 30 seconds advice will turn into, you know, five minutes of advice, which will turn into 15 minutes, which might turn into, you know, an hour coffee. But I think a lot of young people, myself included, when they're just starting out, they're like, hey, can I pick your brain for an hour? Yeah. And... Look, I tried that a lot. And sometimes I got very lucky that people said yes, because they were very kind. But especially if you're asking someone who is very pressed on time. Yeah. um, If you're lucky enough to get, 
even 30 seconds of advice, run with it. Like really run with it and write them, letting them know how much it meant to you. Yeah, I agree that that opens the door for, yeah, for, for a mentorship relationship or yeah. at whatever level people that is. are nice. Even like, you know, the richest people on earth, they're just, they're still nice, kind people who want to feel good about themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. And if you can make it easy for them, like they'll want to help you. Yeah. Absolutely. What I'm eating this up, Alex. You know, you're you're on a mission. Like, what what is the mission moving forward? You know, for me, when I first started writing this book, my vision was to try to make it, you know, the most practical, you know, wisdom packed book I could possibly make. And you know, in some ways, aspects of that came true. You know, in the book, like I said, is Bill Gates's negotiating secrets. There's Tim Ferriss's cold email template, but now that the book is out, in hindsight, can I see that the soul of this book is much deeper? Hmm. And to me, the soul of this book is really about possibility. You know, if there's one thing I've learned over the past seven years, it's that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world, and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. Hmm. And there's this one story that I came across in my research. You know, I can't even remember where I read it, but it's this story about this teacher who's teaching for Teach for America. And I think she's teaching in like Baltimore in a really, you know, tough part of town, a really rough school. And she's teaching maybe, you know, third or fourth grade, and she realizes these kids need some inspiration. So she says, you know, tonight, instead of our, you know, math lesson, we're all going to draw pictures of our biggest dream in life. You know, what we want to be when we grow up. So she passes out papers and crayons and, you know, all the kids start coloring. Except for this one boy sitting in the back of the class. You know, he won't pick up a crayon and his face is like pretty stoic. And then finally, like 30 minutes in, his eyes light up and he starts coloring. And, you know, at the end of the day, the kids go home and the teacher's going through their papers and she sees that that young boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man. And the teacher was very concerned. So she called the mother that night and the mother said that she wasn't surprised. She said that the only male figure in his life who isn't on drugs or in jail Mm. is his uncle who delivers pizza. And what that taught me is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. Mm. They will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. So it's our jobs, whether it's families or school or society at large, to illuminate more branches. And that's the mission moving forward. I just, I don't want to say anything. Alex, that it means a lot. I just, I really appreciate you saying that. And as a parent and as a leader and influencer, like I, yeah, I, I, I resonate with that so deeply and I hope everybody listening does as well. And that we've got to, we've got to illuminate those branches, those possibilities for, uh, not, not just our young people. I think that, you know, we could argue that's probably the most important place to put our energy, but it, it's for each other. You know, it's for, if, if you're a, a spouse, right, it's for your, it's for your spouse, it's for your kid, it's for your friends, it's for, you know, I think that 
how we live our lives gives other people permission to do the same. And so we owe it to the people we love and the people that we lead to really live to our full potential and, and go after all of our grandest visions and possibilities because only then can we inspire and empower others you know, to do the same. Well, uh, Alex, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. I, I, and I want to tell you, in fact, before we close out, let me just say this, that if you are listening to this, if you are a goal achiever, a listener of the Goal Achieve, uh, Achiever Goals podcast, if you dream of learning under the wings of world-class mentors and achieving your biggest goals, or just transforming yourself into the person that you always imagined you could be, I invite you to check out Alex's book, The Third Door. It really it gives you the tools that you need so you can get what you want in your life. And uh, Alex, I'm assuming that this is it's a traditionally published book, so it's available everywhere books are sold, I'm, I'm guessing? Absolutely. Yeah. Wherever people like to buy books. Wherever you like to buy your books, get it on Kindle, get it on Audible, get it on, get it at the store. Cool. Well, hey, Alex, man. Yeah, really. Uh, Thank really. so much, man. Now you're what you are. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was mutually, uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, your time and uh, your, uh, your, your wisdom and, and your heart, uh, all of the above. Really great, great conversation. Man. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Well, hey, Goal Achievers, I will talk to y'all next week. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. And uh, by the way, uh, tickets just went on sale for the best year ever blueprint the live experience. In fact, I'll probably like record a commercial or something for this episode. Um, but uh, yeah, Alex, if you're around in December, December 13th through 15th in San Diego, California, and the details, you can go to bestyeareverlive.com for all the details. And uh, we've got about three mistaken, but yeah, man, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool experience. So we'll talk more about it uh, next week. Goal Achievers, I love you. I really appreciate you and uh, appreciate you, Alex. And I will talk to everybody very, very soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 